chapter 4. We're essentially spending the entire semester in one chapter, John 4, with two people. Jesus and this woman Jesus meets at a well. It's noon, everyone's thirsty, the disciples are off in town buying food, and what ensues is a very personal, in-depth discussion between this woman, a social outcast, and Jesus. And naturally, the discussion turns to the subject of water and drinking. So I'm going to jump in at verse 13 and read down through 26. So it's jumping in the middle of their uh, dialogue together. So John 4, beginning at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I have cut a lot of wood in my life. It is amazing what you can accomplish with a professional-grade, gas-powered chainsaw. It's amazing. On one occasion, I had no option but to use a home-style electric chainsaw. It was awful. It did not compare to the power, the umph, the authority, and the glory of a gas-powered chainsaw. And if you had the choice, you would never trade down from the gas-powered to the electric. And yet, that is often what we do in our lives. Whenever we put anything in our lives more important than God, we have traded down to the electric. Jesus is showing this dear woman that she's traded down to the electric. 
He's never met her, but he knows all about the sordid details of her life. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. Technically true, but hiding the truth. And Jesus knows everything about her. She actually goes into town and with remarkable transparency says, come meet a man who told me everything I did. What an amazing conversation this would uh, to, to hear. Of course, it's none of our business. <laughs> and Jesus knows everything about you as well. He knows any way and any time and in any fashion you have made something more important than God. And we call that sin. Sin is worshiping, as it were, anything else besides God. The passage Jamie read earlier, did you catch where Paul wrote? He wrote these different sins and he says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Sin is idolatry making anything more important than God. It's misplaced worship. And so your life and my life betray in living color, in vivid detail, what we worship. Your life is on display for what you worship. The things that are important to you, they show up in your passions, your emotions, the way you spend your money, the nature of your relationship. What you worship always shows up in the way that you live. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, have you traded down to the electric in your life? Or even better, how would you know? I'm going to give you four tests to see if there's anything about your life that says you're using an electric chainsaw when God himself offers you unspeakable power and glory in himself. So here are the four tests. Number one, what is your worship treasure? I've put in the outline some extensive quotes from two of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp and a little bit later, Tim Keller. And I've just chosen to use their words rather than summarize their words in mine. They say it much better than I can. And by putting them in the bulletin, this gives you the advantage of coming back and looking at these quotes and studying these quotes on your own time. So I'm going to end up reading some of these quotes just so we get exactly what these authors are saying, Paul Tripp is a Christian counselor and author. He wrote a wonderful book on marriage called, What Were You Expecting? (laughs) It's just awesome. But in this book on marriage, he wants to get down to the fundamentals. And he writes this, the word worship is a tricky word. When the average person hears the word worship, he thinks of a gathering, hymns, an offering, and a sermon. But there's a biblical truth embedded in this word that is vital to understand if you're ever going to try to figure out why you struggle in life and how those struggles will ever get solved. Worship is first your identity before it is ever your activity. You are a worshiper. So everything you think Desire, choose, do, or say is shaped by worship. In naming us as worshipers, the Bible is providing for us a radical insight into fundamental human motivation. Because you're not an animal, which functions by ingrained instinct, the things you do and say are driven by some kind of purpose. In other words, whether or not your words and actions make sense on the surface... You have acted or spoken for a reason. 
the most general and fundamental reason for doing what you do is worship. Every human being lives for something. All of us are digging for treasure. All of us are in pursuit of some kind of dream. Behind everything we do is some kind of hope. And every one of us is in constant pursuit of life. So I conclude with his words, being a worshiper means you attach your identity, your meaning and your purpose and your inner sense of well-being to something. Your identity gets, uh, you either get these vertically from the creator or you look to them horizontally and get them from the creation. That helpful? I couldn't have said it better than that. He's Paul Tripp. Notice how in uh, Proverbs 3, this is so vividly portrayed. In Proverbs 3, we meet Lady Wisdom. She's set in contrast literarily to Dame Folly. But I read her as a personification of Jesus Christ, in whom we're told in Colossians 2 are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when Lady Wisdom is speaking, I'm seeing Jesus. And here's, what we, here's how Lady Wisdom, the Lord Jesus, makes his appeal to you, Proverbs 3, beginning at 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Just push pause. You don't have to be religious or believe in God to want just that. You want blessing. You want, you want understanding. You want to know how life works. You want good things. You want valuable things. You want light, your life to make sense. And then Lady Wisdom teases those out. The gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit from gold. She's more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And again, you don't have to believe in God. You don't have to go to church or be religious or believe in the Bible to desire what Lady Wisdom has in her hands. Who doesn't want ways of pleasantness? Who doesn't want peace in their life? In her right hand is long life. Every one of us want long life. Riches and honor, that's what all of us are seeking. You don't have to be religious to want those things. To be human is to want those things. But here's the key. They're in her hand. And what does that tell you? That tells you that these things, long life, riches, honor, paths of pleasantness and peace, they are gifts of God. It is his pleasure to give them to you. And by virtue of coming from his hand, that means unless you take them on God's terms, they will ultimately destroy you. Long life, riches, Honor, a good reputation, plaza peace, pleasantness, a nice home, health. They're all gifts of God, but you take them on your terms, they are bound to control you. And ultimately, they will ruin you. Take them from Jesus with humble, grateful, open hands. Thank you, I don't deserve these. Thank you. Use them on his terms, and you, the creature, can enjoy created things and ultimately the creator himself. Here's the point. 
if our hearts are not first in the grip of the greatness and the love and the glory and the grandeur and the generosity and the mercy of the Creator, then those created things are going to harm us. Because you'll never see their value in comparison to the greatness of God. If you enjoy things more than God, you are trading down to the electric. You know you're not trading down to the electric when you can say, nothing I desire compares with you. I sing a little ditty in my devotions. I don't know if any of you know this. I won't sing it out loud, but I'll tell you the words. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing I desire compares with you. Now, often it's a confession. Because God knows my heart. I desire things more than I desire the Lord. I just hate to tell you that. It's just true. But I need every morning to be reminded, nothing I desire compares with you. That's beginning to get in my hands a gas-powered chainsaw for life. Second test to know whether or not you're living with an electric inept chainsaw. Have you unearthed the lie? Paul Tripp writes, everyone hooks their daily functioning to some kind of dream. Everyone wants to know that what they give themselves to will prove worth it in the end. If you didn't think the things you're doing would pay off in some way, you'd probably quit doing it. Ultimately, we're very practical people. So here's how idolatry works. That is, giving yourself to something, an electric chainsaw, when God is gas-powered. Idolatry works, first of all, with a promise. Have this, and then life is worth the living. And there's always a lie associated with it. The lie is God cannot make you happy without the addition of something else. Idolatry promises a happiness, but God isn't enough. You need God plus this. And that makes it a false gospel, doesn't it? You're looking for your well-being, your sense of hope, your sense of joy, your sense of worth, your sense of acceptance and identity, your right standing in something in addition to God himself. And the lives ultimately prove to be slavery because the thing you give yourself to, you have to have. It comes back knocking saying, give it to me again, give it to me. You know that about the sins you give into. They always come back. Sins never satisfied. He said, well, Mike, how would would I know what those things are? Well, look at what you demand. And you can tell what you demand by your strong emotions. God has wired us so that when we have really strong emotions, that becomes a window into our soul that exposes what we're demanding. It makes us conscious of that. So, for example, when you're digging for treasure and what you want is blocked, you're going to get angry. So when you're angry, stop and ask yourself, what am I demanding in my soul that I'm not getting, it's being blocked. When you're digging for treasure and that treasure's being called into question, you're gonna feel anxious, you're gonna worry. So when you're fraught with worry, what is it, the treasure I want that's being called into question? When you're digging for treasure and that treasure's threatened, they're gonna take it away from you, fear. How many of you fear for your health? 
Come on, you be honest with me. I'm the only one in this stinking room that fears for their health. We, right? There's cancer, there's health issues all over the place. What am I telling you about the demands of my soul that I have fears and concern for my health? It's something I must have in addition to God to be healthy. When your treasures leave you empty, what happens? You feel despair, discouragement, and it's a severe mercy. God is not allowing your life to work if you're living as if God is not enough and you need the addition of something else. So here's some examples. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved. I appear competent. I have people's approval. I have a certain kind of look. I mean, that was me in, in junior high. My hair had, to, hair had to be a certain length. I had to wear a certain clothes. I, I felt like I had skinny legs, so I wore these real high socks to cover up my skinny legs because I needed a certain look. <sighs> Comfort. People are dependent on you. You're free from obligations. You need to feel highly productive. How many of you feel like you should be working on your, on your day off? Come on, I do. I feel guilty on my day off. I feel like I should be working. Thank you. What's that, what is that about? Something going on in here. It's an electric chainsaw. You need a certain level of wealth. You need to meet certain goals. You want your children happy. They're there was, this, there was this song years ago called Heaven is in Heaven Unless My Children Are There. And do I get that? Yeah, I have kids. That is just blasphemous, isn't it? What makes heaven heaven? Sorry if you wrote the song and you're sitting here. <laughs> what makes heaven heaven is the glory of God. We want our children there, of course. All right, that was a little, an aside. So, <laughs> so, Losing these things then tempts you to what? Envy, resentment, complaining, dishonesty, dis discontentment, self-absorption, self-pity. Do, do you know the self-pity barometer in your soul? Yeah, I'm feeling self-pity right now. When I feel self-pity, I do things I don't want to do later. Fear of man. And then you're tempted to escape by abusing food, sex, drink, exercise, entertainment, work. And beloved, what is the truth? The truth of truth is Jesus is more beautiful than anything you desire. He's the most beautiful person in the world, and if you saw him, you would never want to leave his presence. That's the truth. It's like when our kids go to Disney World. Do they want to leave? No. It's too scintillating. It's too tantalizing. Who wants to go back home to boring home? You and I should fear that God is just too ordinary for us. Why are we satisfied with so little of God? We don't see him for who he is. That's the only answer. We're busy with stupid little electric train saws when God himself is more glorious, more powerful, more... He's... That's why the psalmist said at the beginning of the worship service, magnify him. Make him bigger so you can study the intricacies of his glory. At the Outer Banks, where we enjoy the beach... The sand is pretty boring. It's drab. It's kind of light gray. You walk on it. You never give it another thought unless it's hot. But come to my basement where I have 
where my wife has her office. I call it her woman cave. And she'll put some of that sin under her microscope. Unbelievable. That dry, drab sand to the naked eye pops with colors. It's unbelievable. Beloved, we've got to put the glory of God under the microscope until our hearts are popping with praise, with awe. Little God, big problems. Big God, little problems. It's interesting, I'm reading in my devotions right now, Revelation. Why, are the, why, are the, why is the audience getting magnified pictures of Jesus and God on His throne? Because their problems are so awful. They're being persecuted. What God wants to show them is how big their God is. And that's what you and I need under the most trying of circumstances. Bigger pictures of God on His throne. Third test to see if you've traded down in your life. Have you forsaken your small kingdom? Paul Tripp shows that what we worship essentially amounts to a kingdom in which we're servants. So I'll read again. We are a kingdom-oriented people. We always live in the service of one or two kingdoms. Just one or two. Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. We live in the service of the small personal happiness agenda of the kingdom of self. Or we live in the service of the huge origin to destiny kingdom of the kingdom of God. One of two kingdoms. What's your first impulse to say what kingdom are you serving in? Self or kingdom of God? He says when we live for the kingdom of self, our decisions, our thoughts, plans, actions, and words are directed by personal desire. We know what we want, where we want it, why we want it, how we want it, who we prefer to deliver it. Our relationships are shaped by an infrastructure of subtle expectations and silent demands. We know what we want from people and how to get it from them. We seek to surround ourselves with people who will serve our kingdom purposes and we evaluate them not from the perspective of the laws of God and his kingdom, but from the perspective of the laws of our kingdom. See, if that's the way you're living, that means you've got this chainsaw in your hand and you've got to be constantly defending your kingdom. You've got to protect it. You've got to promote yourself. You've got to defend yourself. Drop your chainsaw. Let God pick you up as His instrument. Let God make you His chainsaw. And let Him send you to your neighborhood, to your home, to your place of work, and fulfill the calling God has on your life. Be his chainsaw where you live and where you work. At the hospital, at the school, at the market. Whatever God's called you to do. I was having lunch with someone recently, one of your members, one of your officers, and I asked him about his work. He said, I know I'm doing exactly what God has called me to do. It was music to my ears. God has called you to do something as his chainsaw productively in this culture. It's lots of different things. Get addicted to the pleasure of being an instrument of God. And here in the church, we're yoked together as chainsaws. (laughs) This church is only as strong as the weakest link is yoked to others being used by God in the ministry service of this church. 
you're an instrument in his hand. It's called the doctrine of calling, gifts to serve the church, abilities to make this culture what God wants it to be. Rest in that. Follow Jesus to the place he wants you to serve. Fourth test, last test. Have you traded down to the electric? The fourth test is this. Have you identified the counterfeit glory? Some of you may have heard of an author called Tim Keller. (laughs) So he's got a great book on this, Counterfeit Gods. And what he shows in there is that the things we long for are really a longing for God himself. Here's what Tim writes. A counterfeit God is something so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without second thought. It can be family and children, career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, I have to have that. Then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are more ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best is worship. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. Many look to these things, love, family, money, power, achievement, status, health, beauty, prowess, for the hope, meaning, and fulfillment that only God can provide. If we could say a lot more about that, I just want to reflect on two things about this. These idols always come at a cost. I want to say two things about the cost. They come at a cost. And, and uh, that... that uh, It's called sameness and snare. So Psalm 115, we read it responsibly earlier in the service. The psalmist is pointing out how ridiculous idols are. In the ancient world, you made an idol because of the power you believe behind it could bless your life. But the thing is, you made it. You made it out of stone or wood or whatever, and you put the little ears on it, you put the little eyes on it, you put the little mouth on it. And the psalmist is saying, you've got to be kidding me. Just because you carved a mouth on a piece of wood doesn't mean it speaks. Just because you carved an ear on a piece of wood doesn't mean it hears. Contrast that to the living God. The absurdity of it. And the punchline is, verse 8 of Psalm 115, those who make them become like them. The thing you crave, it's what you are. So do all who trust in them. I am radically a function of what I trust. So what are idols? Deaf, dumb, hollow, useless, senseless, powerless, and dead. That's what anything I crave more than God, good or bad, that's where it'll lead me. The other thing is they become a snare. We could a whole sermon on this, but just Proverbs 29, verse 6 as an example. An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. So whatever you give yourself to, whatever that thing is you say you have to have, the longer it's the thing you have to have without any resistance, it becomes a tighter, 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 
tighter noose around your heart. It becomes a slavery. And it's awful. And there's only one power on earth to save you from this. And that is the ultimate treasure seeker, Jesus. What's his specialty? Jesus came to make wretches his treasure. It's exactly what he's doing at the well in Samaria. Has he done it to you? Has he made you his treasure? How would you know? You know Jesus has made you his treasure when he's created in your heart a desire for him to be your greatest treasure. And what a treasure. How do you get more glorious and valuable than Jesus? He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the great I am. He's true humanity. He's our prophet, priest, and king. He's the friend of sinners, our older brother in the family of God. He's your creator. He's your sustainer. He's the source of everlasting life. He's the fountain of grace, the star of the morning. Beloved, he came to make you his treasure. And he does that through his poverty, the agony of his suffering, the horror of his cross, taking your place on the cross, removing the wrath of God for your sins. His poverty is now your treasure. You make it your boast. Have you died at the foot of the cross? Are you Christ's? This free offer of grace, this unfailing mercy, this salvation love, you must give yourself to Jesus in exchange. We call it repentance. We call it receiving him as Lord. Is he your Lord? If not, that treasure is still outside of you. You might be enamored with it. But let the power of the cross woo you into the life of Jesus. Jesus, into your heart. Say, you're my Lord. You're my King. I am no longer mine. I am yours. You are mine. This woman found Jesus as Lord. She went to the city and proclaimed him. Savior of the world. Messiah. He put away my sins. He knows everything about me. All the sordid stuff. He nailed them to the cross. And in exchange for that love, how? How could I not? Give him my life, my soul. And so Jesus shares his riches with you, his perfect law-keeping, his cleansing blood, his kingdom. He shares his Father, his healing power, his transforming word, his strength, his humble other-centeredness, his resurrection. That's a powerful chainsaw that cuts everything you'll ever need. Let's pray. Father, what a gift, what glory, what love, what grace, what mercy, what hope, what life your Son is. Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. May we be smitten by his glory, make him bigger, be an instrument in his hands for his glory in our church, our homes, and this community. For Jesus' sake, amen.